First John and chapter 4. It's been a month since we were last in this passage of scripture. We really ought to have studied it last weekend, but after the death of our sister Exilda, I felt it important that I should instead deal with a text that was closer to my own heart in the light of the event, the frowning providence that visited us as a church. But now we have the opportunity to recommence a series of messages in 1 John and chapter 4. So let me read beginning with verse 7 all the way to verse 12. 1 John chapter 4 verse 7 to verse 12. The Apostle John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Well, as you can see from the Bible reading, we are in the passage of scripture that is really dealing with the whole topic of love. The Apostle John began talking about this from chapter 3 and verse 11, when he said, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He took a slight detour from it when he came to the beginning of chapter 4 and then came back to the subject in verse 7 where we had spent quite some time last time meditating. And what we saw there in chapter 4 and verse 7 was that genuine love for believers proves that we are truly believers. He makes it abundantly clear there. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The reason is pretty simple. It is because love comes from God. It has its source in God. The God who now dwells in the hearts of his people. So clearly, that sun is radiating rays out of our hearts and consequently 
touching so many lives around us. And today, we're moving on from that and seeing the exact opposite. And the opposite is that the lack of love for believers proves that we ourselves are unconverted. We've had opportunity, haven't we, to put this into practice. I mean, someone among us lost his wife two weeks ago. Clearly, that was right in the midst of our learning about love. Surely, if you are a true child of God, something happened in you at that time. You had an opportunity to express your love to a believer, a child of God who has been touched at the closest point in his own life. The loss of a spouse is the closest that a knife can get to you without killing you. So we had the opportunity. We don't need to guess and philosophize as to whether we love or we do not love. We had the opportunity right here in our own midst. It only makes sense that John should not only speak in terms of if you love, surely you must be a believer, but that he should turn the coin the other way around and also say to us, if you do not love, you are not a child of God. We often love to be assured, don't we? You do something and someone is encouraging you and saying to you, you know, you really have a good heart. Or you pass your exams and people say to you, I've always known you are intelligent. We love that. We don't like the opposite. Someone saying to us, you know, you've got a bad heart. We get really upset. Or as parents perhaps might tell us in their anger, you are dull. I always tell you, you are dull. You need to work harder in order to pass your exams. You forget about working harder. And all you are saying is, how can you say I'm dull? We get angry about it. But sometimes when people speak negatively, they mean well. They really do. Is, is somebody saying to you, you know, those uh, whitish things in your eyes in the morning, they are still there. Just help yourself a little bit before you go to church. Otherwise, people will be looking the other way when they, they see you. You don't get upset about things like that. That person is helping you. For those of us who are men, every so often, you are told, you know, your, your zipper is still open. Or the person has helped you. Instead of you spending the rest of your day with people laughing at you everywhere you are going, look at his zipper. Hasn't he got a wife at home to, to tell him about it? We're grateful that something negative about us has been told to us to help us. And that's what John is doing here. He's not simply saying, you stupid. No, no, no. He's trying to make us see that we should do something about our current state 
so that we can be better. So I do admit this is a negative statement. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Or to put it more directly, he is saying, if you don't love, you don't know God. You don't know him. You are a stranger to his grace. Well, friends, let's think together about this fact. What your lack of love proves. First of all, the absence of love is a common phenomenon. Including the lack of love in the church. It's not an unknown complaint for somebody to say, there's no love in this church. There's no love in this church. That's not a strange statement for someone to make. And so when, when John turns the coin and brings in the subject of lack of love, we don't sit there looking at ourselves saying, where on earth has he picked this from? I can't remember the last time anybody ever complained about a lack of love. John is speaking about something that we are aware of. People not being interested in helping you in your moment of need. Thankfully, John has been handling this a few times already. We go back, for instance, to verse 12 of chapter 3, where he uses the example of Cain to illustrate the absence of love. He says there in chapter 3 and verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. There is an example. Being hated not because you've offended an individual directly, but because as you are trying to live your own life before God and receiving from God his blessings upon you, someone else is jealous about that. He feels strong, negative feelings towards you. He begins to nurse a grudge against you. And in the process, he harms you. Whether it is with words, whether it is physically, is beside the point. And again, church life can comprise individuals like that. You haven't done anything wrong towards them but already they, they feel negatively towards you and on an unprepared debt you've not prepared yourself with it suddenly they have the opportunity and out gushes this enmity towards you completely takes you by surprise whether it is in physical form although often in the church it is through words, very hurtful words. That's one example. He also speaks about the fact that murderers don't have spiritual life. 
in verse 14 and verse 15. He says there, halfway through verse 14, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's important that we check ourselves because sometimes hatred does not have, have opportunity to express itself. But it's still a grudge that you are nursing in your soul. You are wishing harm upon an individual who is there within the context of your own life. And what John is saying here is that if that is characteristic of you, you are a person who is bereft of spiritual life. You are not an individual that God has given you life yet. You are still dead in your sins. And again, it's important that we process ourselves through it. Is this my life? Am I going around with a kind of invisible sword? When I see somebody, I feel like stabbing them. Is that my life? Because if it is, I need to go to God and deal with it before the last and final day. Well, in case we're still thinking that hatred is active, John has already told us that it's possible to have a hatred through the sins of omission. Not doing what we're supposed to do if we really loved an individual. Look at the way he puts it finally there in verse 17. The lack of responsiveness being evidence of lack of love. Verse 17. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Wow. Because we often tend to think of hatred purely in terms of that someone has done something to you. But you know, we can also hate by not responding positively to a person who is in need. That's hatred. That's hatred. You know that this person needs medication. And you know that you possess that medication. And then you keep it away from that person. And that person dies. You love them? You love them? Come on, tell me another one. You love them? Yes, you may not have put a sword through their rib cages, but the point is, you're holding back that which in fact can be a blessing to them is clear manifestation of real hatred for them. Because they are continuing to suffer. They are continuing in pain. Their prayers are continuing to go up 
to God for relief from this pain as they are spiraling downwards. And you, you have the power to stop it. You still allow it to take place. Friends, again, that is what he means when he says, if you do not love. If you do not love. Ask yourself the question, is this characteristic of me? That there are Christians round about me, especially within the context of my own local church, where I am and I visibly can see or I hear about their need or I read it through emails coming through the church office and I just don't do anything about it. I continue my own life. I'm very busy. I don't want to be disturbed. Well, it is a sign that you are proving what John is dealing with here when he says anyone who does not love. Now, this is a reality primarily because of, of sin. Sin, not so much in terms of the actions we do, but sin in terms of that dirty power, that force, like the force of gravity that pulls us downwards. It's in all of us. Even those of us who are Christians. You wake up in the morning and your desire is to be a blessing to so many people. Somewhere along the lines, this foul power shows itself, especially with individuals that you have brushed shoulders with in terms of the wrong way. They've rubbed you the wrong way previously. Our tendency is for this foul power to, to show itself. And you say, no, no, I won't, no. May he suffer for this. May, may this prove that he should have been uh, kind and gentle and long-suffering towards me. And in the process, you hold back love. This foul power makes us selfish and self-centered. It makes the universe to revolve around us rather than around God and the responsibilities that he has placed upon us. So, are you surprised at lack of love around you? Well, this is the explanation. It is this foul power that Jesus Christ came to destroy in the hearts of human beings. That's the explanation. It's not that some people were, were born in bad families or, or raised up in bad areas of town and so on and so forth. No, it is this fallenness that the Bible teaches about. Are you yourself surprised at those moments when these suggestions come in your own heart? Suggestions that say no. Suggestions that say you must hit back. Suggestions that are almost turning you into a literal murderer. Recognize it's this fallen nature that we all 
carry with us. Now, what John is telling us here is that the absence of love is not only a common phenomenon, but it also proves our spiritual state. The lack of love proves our spiritual state. Let's go back to our text. He says that anyone who does not love does not know God. It's not just, well, I might be a little worse than the other person. It's not just, you know, I, I seem to have some negative feelings about people generally. He's saying it has a bearing on your present spiritual state. It is suggestive of the fact that you don't know God. Now, this knowledge here has nothing to do with simple brain cognition, that you don't know him the way in which perhaps if someone asks you, do you know William Banda? You say, no, I don't know him. Rather, it is referring to experiential knowledge. Something that touches you in the depth of your being and consequently affects your behavior. The one example I was thinking about is you're playing with friends, you're teenagers, and uh, one of your friends sees the keys to your dad's car and comes to you because your dad's car is there. And says, Mwana, Mwana, look, I found your dad's car keys. Let's jump in and go. You look at him and say, you obviously don't know my father. I mean, he knows your dad. He's, he's seen him around a few times. But what you're really saying is, my friend, the consequences of this will be dire. Don't even try. Because me, I know him in an experiential way. I have felt it a few times on the backside. I don't want to experience that again. Put back the keys. That's the kind of knowledge that is being spoken about here. It's experiential. The one major difference between my illustration and what John is talking about is experiential knowledge of God actually saves. When you meet with God this way, you mingle with God in this spiritual reality, he saves you. He changes you from the inside out. So it's not simply, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to be in serious trouble, and so will you. It is that your heart has consequently been changed because he comes to live in your heart. He, he dwells in your heart and changes the way in which you respond to all situations around you. That's what is being spoken about here. And it only makes sense. Because, you see, that's John's primary business 
with this epistle. It is that he, he, he wants to give us basic tests so that we can know whether we are Christians or not. I keep bringing you back to chapter 5 and verse 13. Chapter 5 and verse 13. He says there, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why I've written these things to you. So that you may know that eternal life dwells in you. But it's only if you pass these tests that I'm putting before you. And clearly now we have a negative test. And the negative test put very directly is if you do not love, as I've already illustrated in this, in, in this book, then you don't have an experiential, saving knowledge of God. You don't. You may have been baptized. You may have been welcomed into this church. You may have repeated some sinner's prayer somewhere or answered some altar call. All those things are not under question. We're not even questioning the sincerity with which you underwent all those factory-made processes. That's not the question. Rather, it is your present spiritual state. If you do not love, as has already been indicated in this chapter, you are not a Christian. And the best you can do for yourself is to face this reality, to come to terms with this reality, so that you do something about it. Now remember what I said at the beginning? We don't like such negative statements. We don't. We want somebody to be smiling at us and saying, you know what, from what I'm seeing, you're truly a child of God. Now that's fair. Sometimes that happens. The last passage of scripture we looked at, verse 7, that's what it was doing. It was encouraging us. There's this fruit, you must be a child of God. But friends, this is the other side. We should also examine ourselves. It's not nice. It's a slap in the face. It's painful. But it's like chloroquine. Bitter in the mouth. But it does the job on the inside. It deals with the malaria parasite. And consequently makes us well. So are you examining yourself as you are sitting there this morning? Are you? Are you examining yourself about your, your attitudes towards other people and especially towards believers? Are you examining yourself? I've taken you to that passage a number of times before where Jesus speaking before he went to the cross refers to the judgment, the final judgment. And he says human beings will be divided into two. 
to the one group is going to say, welcome. I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was naked. You clothed me. I was sick or in prison. You visited me, etc., etc. Well, that was the positive. This is now the negative. He turns to those that he called goats. And he says, I was hungry. You gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was naked. You did not attend to me. I was sick, imprisoned. You did not visit me. You did not. You did not. You did not. You did not. Here's the question in self-examination. Information comes to you. How are you responding to it? Because you may refuse now to face it. I want to assure you on that final day of judgment, you will face it. The only difference is that at that time it will be too late. It will be too late when you see your little self-centered, selfish life being exposed it will be too late. You cannot now say to Jesus, Jesus, save me from this sinful, selfish heart. It's too late. This is the time. To look back into the last week, look back into the last two weeks, look back into the last month, look further back and see what kind of heart you have and whether it is truly one that is reaching out to believers. Well, John doesn't just make this assertion. He also gives a reason. The reason lack of love proves that you are not converted is because of the very nature of God. The very nature of God. Look at the way he puts it. Back to our text. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Because God is love. There are only two other places where God is defined so neatly. And in those two places, again, it's John. In his gospel, he quoted the Lord Jesus Christ saying that God is spirit. It's his, his very essence. He is spirit. Put another way, simply, he does not possess a body. Earlier on in First John, he had said God is light. A very complex picture reduced into something all of us are familiar with. Light. Speaking in terms of his own transparency, speaking in terms of his own integrity, speaking in terms of his own truthfulness, speaking in terms of his own moral purity, etc. All of them embedded in that word, God is light. 
And here he is now telling us God is love. Notice he is not saying God is loving. As though what he wants to show us is some quality about God that shows something of the way in which he often relates to us. God is loving. God is kind. God is gentle. God is forbearing. God is... Rather, he's saying God is love. In other words, it's of his very nature. He is love. It's, it's his very essence. He is love. Or to add essence and nature, it is of his essential nature. Love. You cannot have God bereft of love. You can't. It's of his very nature, his very essence. So when you say God is in you and love is not oozing out, there is a serious contradiction there. It can't be. No, 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 a thousand times no. Doesn't matter what you think. It is of the very essence of God to be love. And if it's in your soul, then love will ooze out. If love is not touching the people round about you, God isn't there. And the sooner you realize it, the better. God isn't there. I was trying to think of how best to illustrate it. And I thought of an ocean. We often speak of an ocean as being full of water. But that's not true. Because if there's no water, there's no ocean. You have a very deep valley. And a very wide valley. But you can't call it an ocean. Because an ocean is water. Plenty of water. Get water out, there's no ocean. You may say there was an ocean here a few weeks ago. Until someone with a tank came and drained the ocean. But you can't speak ocean without water. The two must be together. Otherwise, the statement is absolutely absurd. Well, here it is. That's what you are doing. When you are claiming that you know God, you are claiming that you are saved by God, you are claiming that God is in your soul and then love is not oozing out of you. Instead, it's a petty individual whose life revolves around himself and even when he has done some act of love, it's because he's expecting something back for himself. That's not love. 
And that's not God. Friends, that's what we need to face. These, these are realities we cannot run away from. We're not saying God acts in love, which he does. We are saying love is of his very essence. So if God, whose very essence is love, is in your soul, here's the question. How come we don't sense your love? How come? How come when there are people in need of love, you are the very last person to ever be there to run into the situation? How come? How, how come you are, you are so busy? Too busy for that matter. That you don't touch down to understand what I mean from the language of aeroplanes. You're always just flying past, too busy. And the next time we see you is at church on Sunday. And it's always other people meeting the needs and hurts of fellow believers. How come? How come? Come. How come? If a God who is love, who is love, dwells in your soul. Well, brethren, John has done us a big favor. He's thrown us into that corner where we have to take a stethoscope and put it against our hearts to see whether we are really alive. He used the positive, and I trust we were quite encouraged last week. Was it the week before? No, a month ago. But now, here we are with the negative. Let's not brush aside that stethoscope. Hey, come on. It's making me uncomfortable. Let's not do that. Because love is practical. Very practical. Very practical. Don't go back to last year to say, you know, last year, at least last year. Have you been put into an ice cube since then? Or you're actually alive? and you are mingling with people, and you are having emotional responses across this whole year, and you, you're responding either warmly or very negatively. And you are hearing, you are seeing, you, you, you are getting information about the needs around about you. In real time, what's your response? What's your response? Are you genuinely interested? Genuinely. Not as a show off. Genuinely 
interested in the welfare of fellow believers? Are you? Are you genuinely sacrificing? And notice the word I've used, sacrificing. And sacrificing reaches the point of ouch. Ouch. Are you genuinely sacrificing your time in order to meet others who are in need of love? Are you genuinely sacrificing your money? Your money. I think it was John Wesley who said the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. His wallet. A person is willing to do almost anything for you but reach backwards into his back pocket. Has God done such a work of grace in you that you do reach back to your back pocket and pull out your wallet and go, ouch. But at the same time, you are saying it's for the good of this child of God. Are you genuinely doing that? Are you genuinely using the abilities God has given you? The training that you have received in order to relieve others, other believers in their situations. Are you? Well, what John is really doing here in speaking to us this way, maybe let me change the phrase a little, slapping us in the face, is in order to make us not despair, but when we begin to realize that, look, this is not me, he wants us to, to take a moment and go to the Lord Jesus Christ and say to him, Lord, I'm failing this test. I'm failing this test. At a practical level, I'm failing this test. Jesus, save me. And save me now. Save me from myself. Save me now. So that in all sincerity and humility, when such messages come to me, I'm able to say, thank you, Lord. My life has changed. Once upon a time, I would have failed here. But now, because you live in my heart, there is a change. I find myself responding, despite myself in love to other believers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you can't do that, take a moment and cry to Christ. It's his major business to save souls, to change hearts by his spirit. That's what he has come to do. Don't find yourself looking him in the face on the final day of judgment, remembering this occasion that he was knocking, 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 and you still just brush it aside because why should I be slapped in the face? How dare you? 
raise such standards that are beyond anybody. Why? Don't do that. Cry to him that while he is saving others, he may not pass you by. Amen.